Now, I don't know if you consider yourself a puzzle person or not. I know some families, it's kind of a tradition that every year around a certain time, they like to, to do a 500, 1,000, 2,000 piece puzzle. But I think everyone, as we begin to put puzzles together, have three components uh, of making it, the dream become a reality. See, the first step isn't to get all the pieces out. The first step is to look at the box, to see the whole picture of what you're about to create. Then you take every piece out and you lay them on the table, putting them face up, trying to make sure that maybe, hopefully, they're all there, you're not missing any. And then you kind of begin to work your plan. Some people like to go with the edges, others try to get all the blue ones because we're going to tackle the ocean first or whatever it may be. And see, putting together a puzzle to me is a lot like how we can approach reading scripture. Those components, we got to see the big picture, but we also know that each piece has its specific place and it's very valuable to everything that we're trying to create. So perhaps though, as we begin to say, well, well what do I do with this? Perhaps you, you've had the courage to, to start reading the Bible for yourself. But you might run into that sentiment of, well, Eric, Eric, I know I'm supposed to read this, but I don't, I don't really know where to start. I don't know sometimes how to make sense of it. How do I make sure that I'm landing at the right spot and not just getting more information, but transformation as well? And so today, we're going to look at a story found in Luke chapter 24, somewhat of, a, somewhat of an obscure story about these two people on the road to Emmaus, seven, uh, seven miles outside of the city of Jerusalem, that I believe kind of sets a precedent, sets a cadence for us as we can look to engage with Scripture on our own. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24, because as we begin to see that the more faithful we are to Scripture, the better equipped we are to follow Jesus. Luke chapter 24, starting in verse 13, says, Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus, he asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? And they stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And they go on to explain some of the stuff that Jesus did and how they thought that he was going to be the Messiah. And then in verse 25, this is our first part this morning. It says, when he said to them, how foolish are you? Jesus is talking to them now. And how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And so here's what basically happens is Jesus begins to unpack. He comes up on these two people and they don't recognize him. Now, now my assumption is, is that when Mary saw Jesus last, he looked vitally different. Someone who was beaten within an inch of his life. He was hanging on a cross and now he has resurrected in a new body. Someone's going to look just a little bit different. And the two of them, they're having this dialogue. Man, I thought, that, I thought he was it. 
I thought he was the one. The Old Testament, the prophecies, all of it seemed to point, but then we watch our hope just evaporate in front of us. And Jesus answers, hey, uh, yeah, you're wrong because your hope isn't gone. Your, your hope is here. And he begins to say, so, so let me show you. And it says, so starting with Moses, he opens the Bible all the way at the beginning and begins to say, let me describe to you everything that was written and who it's about. So that's our first key to Bible engagement is purely simple is to open the Bible. I know it sounds obvious. I know it's a little like, uh, well, doy, but that's the thing is we have to first open it before we can read and understand what it says. And so Jesus, he goes to the beginning and he begins to describe how everything is about him. Genesis, all the way through the prophets. But for us today, we have an extra component. We have the New Testament that describes it even more. And so let me break it down for you here in just a couple minutes. What does it look like to know that everything written has one singular purpose? You see, to me, the Bible is like any other story, except for the fact that, well, it's the best story ever written. And every story, it has a beginning. It has an exposition. It has a setting. It has something. This tells you, hey, this is who was. This is where we're, we're going. This is what's happening. And in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, we learn about a God. An all-powerful and all-loving God who creates in what is called shalom. It's this Hebrew word that means peace, harmony, unity. And the beginning of every story, it always tells you, it sets up the scene of what probably needs to happen next. And in this story, we learn about a God who creates out of love, out of relationship for you and I to live, to be invited into that. Yet at the same time too, we also understand that if he was the source of everything, then he also needs to be the source of the solution. But just a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 23, that peace, that harmony, that intent is broken. We have the creation, but then there's a crash that comes along with it. There's a crash, and we call this crash sin, that God's creation begins to unravel. You see, sin enters the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve. Sin is this archery term that means to not hit the bullseye, to not hit your target. Eventually, we began to see that what sin truly is, it's, it's our selfishness, our pride, it's our inability, well, frankly, to make good, wise, God-honoring choices. At the end of the day, sin for you and I is when we think we know better than God. When, 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 when we fail to just be with God and instead we try to play God, we see over and over again that we fail miserably. There's a crash, there's a brokenness that happens from the way that everything was created to be. And then from that point forward, for the next few dozen books of the Old Testament, we see this cycle begin to happen, this cycle of choices over and over and over again, this cycle of sin and, and, and then rebellion and repentance and obedience and back to sin and rebellion. And over and over, the people of God make these choices. But even in the midst of these choices, God is still loving. God is still making covenants. He's still making promises, saying, I desire things to be back here, but nothing works. They try prophets, they try the priests, they try kings, judges, they try everything. And over and over and over again, the choices seem to get worse. The choices seem to get darker. 
right? This is the point in every story where it seems like the bad guys are going to win. This is the point in the story where the clouds aren't getting brighter. In fact, they're getting darker. This is the point in the story for us where we begin to say, is there any hope? Is there any hope that this, this brokenness, this crash of sin will ever be resolved permanently? But then we turn to the first page of the New Testament. We get told that there is a, a baby born of a virgin that the prophets talked about, prophesied of who is to come. And this is the turning point. This is the climax of the story. And I just, I imagine it's at this point when Jesus gets here that, that, that he just kind of saying, okay, you know, you're tracking with me, right, guys? Or, you know, there's Genesis and law and all that type of stuff. But guess, so, so then, you know, then, then, then guess what? Then there's this baby born of a, of, 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 of a virgin was born, and that's me. And this is the crazy part, right? And, and so, so for the next 30 years of my life, I was a pretty normal, I was a pretty average guy. I didn't really do anything special. I didn't do anything really over the top, except then at age 30, I, I gathered up a bunch of teenage hooligans, these fishermen who, who really were kind of just like no one ever considered them to be of anything in life. And, and so we got together for three years. I walked them around the ancient Middle East. We performed, I performed some miracles. I healed some people. I turned water into wine. That was a fun one. And I teach people uh, about the kingdom of God. I would break down walls. I wouldn't build barriers. I'd cross bridges to welcome people. I called out the religious people and some of their hearts changed. Some of them didn't. He says, but then at one point, I'm sitting with my closest friends and, and one of them gets up from the table and he sells me out. 30 pieces of silver, a half year salary or so. I get put on trial then my own people trade me for a thug. But I knew I had to do it. And then over the next couple of days, I was beaten, I was mocked, I was whipped with an inch of my life. And I took my last breath after being nailed to a cross so that I could be the turning point so that I could be the answer, so that I could be the solution for that crash that happened for each and every one of us. That rebellion, that sin, that pride that lives in you, I took care of that. And if you believe, if you trust in my name, you can have everlasting and eternal life. And from that point forward, then the cycle of choices begins to change. We can reverse it. And we call this the church. And we get to point back the, the proclamation, the explanation of everything that Jesus has done. It begins to go the other way because of his spirit that lives in us. But then in Revelation chapter 21, it tells us that everything will be put back together. The conclusion that shalom is restored for everlasting eternity. It will not change. I just think that Jesus, he's unpacking this story saying, everything was written about me to bring new life. I am the Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. I am that prophet. I am that hope. I am that redemption. I am that salvation. I am the Messiah. And he just looks at them and says, so do you believe it or not? So, so in summation, what I feel like Jesus is saying, he's saying, all of this is about me. All, all of this, this entire story, 
from creation to the conclusion. It's all about me. The Apostle John in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, he says, all of this is written so that you might believe and have new life. But that's just the first step Jesus is saying. Yeah, you got to open it, but there's a little bit more that we have to do to know and have new life. So back to our story in, in Luke chapter 24, picking up in verse 30. And so he says, when he was at the table with them, he broke bread and gave thanks, broke it and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. And they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? So here's what happened. They're on the road. They get to the table and then they, 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 they urge Jesus. They said, Jesus, stay with us. But they didn't know it was Jesus quite yet until he, he, he interacts. He has communion with them, breaking that bread, pouring out that wine to do this in remembrance of me. And, he, and it says they urge him to stay. Now, this word stay wasn't, hey, Jesus, have a quick meal with us. Hey, do you, do you need to take a quick bathroom break before you go on your dream? You know, this, this word stay, menno, it means to abide. It means to rest. It's the same word used in John chapter 15 when Jesus says the Holy Spirit has come so that you may abide with Christ, abide with God. And so they say, Jesus, dwell with us, rest with us, relax with us. And then it says that their eyes were opened and their hearts opened were burning because they found out who this was and what everything was about. See, their eyes were opened. It's this, this understanding, but it's also a reference in which a baby comes out of their womb and their eyes are open for the first time. Speaks of a new birth. So, so literally, it wasn't saying that they had their eyes closed and then, oh, here's Jesus. They had this awakening. Oh, you are that man. You are that God. You are that Savior. Everything that was written has come true. Their eyes were opened. Their hearts had burned. They said, did your heart not burn? Was it not jumping? Was it not on fire when he was with us? And so that's the second key to engaging with Scripture is that we need to open our heart and our mind to God. I love this interaction because I, I think it, it point blank asks us all to consider that question. Am I open to what scripture says? Am I willing to have new understanding? Am I willing to have new life? Am I willing to have my spirit set ablaze? Am I willing to be changed by Jesus? Because it's one thing to be informed. It's a completely another thing to be transformed by the word and the person of Jesus. You see, I'm a firm believer that how we treat Scripture is the true litmus test of our belief in God and our faith. That, that, that if we treat Scripture as a, just like a checklist, it's something I got to do a couple times a week, then it's probably a good indication that God's just a part of your life, that He's not all of your life. That if, if we treat Scripture like a, like a roulette where we just kind of thumb through and we pick a verse and say, this one looks good today, then there's a good chance that that's how you view God, that God is just there to maybe bring some good luck to you when you seem to be in need. If you treat Scripture as something that you only turn to when you're downtrodden, when you need a little bit of that spiritual caffeine, 
that God's somehow this, this magic genie that's supposed to just completely encourage you, but never convict you, never challenge you. Or perhaps we only go to scripture when it's convenient. When I had the time, when dinner's made, I've gotten enough sleep, I don't have anything good to watch on TV. Well, it's convenient. Well, maybe that's how we view God then at that moment. Well, God, when it's convenient, when I've got the time, when my schedule allows, I'll invite you into my life. I think that's what Jesus is having this interaction. These people are having this light bulb moment, not just saying, I see the box, but I, and not just see the story, but I know my place. I see how every piece has the ability to play a larger role in my life. See, the point of the Bible is to know Jesus, not to know the Bible. The point of the Bible is to spend time with God, not to honor your end of some spiritual contract. That's why faith is described as a draw nearer, not a try harder. Draw nearer to me, spend time with me, rest, abide, stay with me. I think some of us, we need to realize that being in scripture is the most fundamental way that we can just be with God in his presence, enjoy him, and understand how he wants to change our hearts and our minds for his kingdom. See, we spend time in God's word to become like someone, not just to learn something. The thing is, it's not just about opening the Bible. And a big step is for us to have our hearts and our minds open to what Jesus might want to do in us. But there's a final piece to this puzzle. I love how this, this, this passage kind of wraps up. Luke 24, verses 33 to 35, kind of ends this, this story this way. It says, then they, talking about Cleopas and his, his wife, they got up and they returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the 11, talking about the disciples and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. See, after they understand their story, they check their hearts, then they begin to say, we've got to tell people. We've got work to do. There's people in our community who, who, who need to have this transformation, this understanding like, like we do. So they began to share the good news. They invited people into their lives. And see, it's, it's, it's so interesting. And this is where we sometimes lose context because in the ancient Middle East, if you invited someone into your life, into your fold, onto your team, a part of your crew, if you invited someone to be discipled in something that you have, that you know, to be an apprentice along with you, there was a commitment that I will be with you. I will hold you accountable and we will do this together. So that's the third key of Bible engagement is that we need to open our lives. We need to open our lives. But that's where the disconnect happens, I think, a lot. In our American westernized culture, we have this, this, this lone ranger faith, don't we? Well, I've got my Bible I've got my personal time, but I'm not going to really spend time with someone else. I'm not really going to let them see what I'm struggling with. I'm not truly going to let someone hold me accountable because we kind of like that. Because at the end of the day, if no one is in your life, you don't have to really, really, really consider if it's actually changing you or not. You can fake it. 
You can pretend. You can, you can just go through the motions on the surface with the mask up, but deep down you know that you're not any different than you were years ago. And that's why it's so important that we open our lives, not just to have someone in our corner, but so that we can be in their corner as well. These two, they heard the news, they got up, they ran to their friends and say, it is true. Now we need to live this out together. We need to do this. Open your Bible. Open your eyes and your heart and your mind. Open your life. I want to end, though, with a practical approach then. Eric, how do I read? How do, how do I invite someone in? How can I get to the point in which this becomes a part of me? The brother of Jesus, his name's James. In James chapter 1, he has this, this great challenge, this great uh, encouragement in which he, well, he frankly just puts it straightforward. In James chapter 1, verse 22 he begins to say this. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But in verse 25, whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So how do we become doers of the word and not just hearers? I want to introduce you this morning, the last couple minutes here, of what I call the up, out, in approach to engaging with scripture. It's not the method to read the Bible. It's purely a method. But it was birthed after years and years of struggle trying to find something in which, how do I not just do this by myself, but how does what I read change every relationship in my life? See, you and I alike, there are three key relationships that we function in in our life. Number one, there's the upward, our relationship with God, the all-loving God in His grace who calls us in obedience to live after Him. He's given you gifts. He's given you passions. He's given you desires. He has a law. He has a grace. He has a Son who died on our behalf and has given us new life. There's a relationship there that we need to know and to cultivate. The second thing is we have relationships with others. And this others is a broad category, isn't it? You have relationships with other people, your spouse, relationships with your kids, your friends, your coworkers, your employees, your neighbors, everything. There's relationships all throughout our life. This is the out. We have relationships with other people all throughout our life. And there's the final one. Is that you and I alike, we have a relationship with ourselves, inwardly, up out, in. These are the three key relationships in our life. And we are relational beings, aren't we? We desire relationships. We crave relationships. We are made in the image and likeness of God, a triune God who in and of himself has a relationship. We are made to be relational beings. And so how can you engage with scripture? How can I better engage with the Bible on my own? Simply as you read portions of scripture, ask yourself those three words. Up, out, and in. Up. What does this passage show me about God? What does it reveal to me about his character, about his nature, his desires, and how I can better be living for him? This could range from his mercy to his love, to his design, to his wrath. 
Well, I don't know what it is, but, but every passage can speak to your relationship with God. Out, what does this passage show me with others? What does it teach me about how I relate to other people and what do I need to do? How does it reveal God's truth about the other people in your life? You know, maybe it's a passage that says, well, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. What does that teach you about other people? Is that no one's perfect. Don't expect that spouse. Don't expect that boyfriend, girlfriend. Don't expect that friend, that boss, that coworker to always be perfect. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Or maybe it's that all have been created in the image of God. So regardless of their sex, regardless of their, of their race, their socioeconomic status, that everyone is made and loved and captured in the image of God. And then number three, inwardly. What does this passage show me about myself? Is there something that I need to submit to God? Is there something that I need to give up to God? Is there something that I need to praise God for in my life? How do I need to better spend my time? Is there someone I need to forgive? I don't know what it is, but there's probably a sense in which it's encouraging you, convicting you, challenging you to say inwardly, how does this passage apply to you? Up, out, and in. It's good for head knowledge. It's great for heart change, but it's even better when there's accountability to go along with it. The Bible has power because it's our truest source to know, love, and follow the God of the universe who put into motion a story that invites us all to be with him. My name is Justin Fisher. I'm a junior here at University of Illinois. I'm studying economics, uh, doing Air Force ROTC as well. Hi, I'm Katie Hensold. I am a mom of three kids and I'm a social worker and an adjunct professor. My name's Scott Trumbull. I'm an elder here at First and I work in accounting for a local lumberyard. Yes, yeah, so in reading the Word of God, I've divided this into two camps. One is how I read the Word of God among others, in community among other Christians, and one is how I read the Word of God on my, on my own. So, and specific groups that I'm a part of. One is a Bible study called Valor. So that's a group of seven or eight guys. That's, that's a lot of discussion based. Another one is high school ministry here at First Christian Church. Um, so that's been me walking with a few high school students in their, in their journey with Christ. And I think equally important is how I read the Word of God on my own. So usually picking a book, going through it chapter by chapter. And then I have a big uh, ESV study Bible. Um, and as I'm reading each verse, I usually read the end notes at the bottom there to understand that verse. Um, I'll also read some commentary online. But to be honest, some of my favorite commentary is just people I know within my community, right? I use the Wayfinding Bible. Um, and so I'm doing, going through the stops there. My New Year's resolution was to slow down my time with the Lord um, instead of kind of rushing through it to check it off my list. Um, and so each stop I'm actually reading twice and then spending a third day meditating on whatever stands out to me. Usually like I'll do like a, a book of the Bible at a time. We lead our small group, so sometimes we've been reading things with them and then I'll kind of do my own thing on the side or I've been in women's Bible studies. And so if I like, depending on the study, I'll follow that plan. I found that I stay focused and I gain more by writing things down. So, so my practice is to uh, read a passage and then I think about it and I pray about it, write some and then write my thoughts. I find I, I glean a lot more and um, it's a much more fruitful time for me to do it that way. Periodically then I'll just 
just read, not diving so deep and just doing the overview gives you a, a, sometimes a good picture as well. And maybe you see some different things that you don't when you're looking at individual trees, you know, when you're looking at the whole forest. It's amazing how many times you read something and then each time it's new, God shows you something new. So I kind of look for two things. One, how this specific chapter, whether it's gonna be in the Old Testament or the New Testament of the Bible, is how it's gonna relate back to the gospel, right? So if I'm going through an Old Testament study, I really like to see how does that um, foretell Jesus Christ? How does that foretell the gospel in the New Testament? And even in the New Testament, if I'm reading a letter by Paul, then I'm gonna to try to figure out how does that relate back to the gospel. Um, so if I'm reading commentary on something, the, the first thing I'm gonna look for is how does this relate back to the Holy Gospel to really kind of apply that to my life. So that kind of translates to the second part that I'm, uh, I'm looking at here is how, do, how does this specific scripture, um, how is that applicable to my life in relationships and work and school, et cetera. With my helper personality, it's like I'm always wanting to speak into other people's lives, which is why probably one of the reasons why I love doing therapy so much. And so I really like thinking about how I can use this to speak to others or how I can minister to others. Um, but then I also try to figure out like, okay, if I was struggling with my kids yesterday or, um, you know, I had a short fuse with Ben yesterday, Ben's my husband, like how can I use this and just be reminded of God's faithfulness and that he's with me through this. He's helping me um, like kind of slow down and remember how he wants me to respond in this situation or how he wants me to pour into my kids' lives even when it's difficult. Sometimes there'll be a, a issue or something that I, that I want to explore is what God says about that. And so then I'll look in the Bible for specific uh, references and, and look to look that specific topic up. But most of the time I'm, I'm reading and I'm, I wanna be just open to whatever God wants to show me. And because uh, sometimes maybe the direction I'm going isn't maybe the direction what he wants to tell me. As far as, as applying or what I do with what I read, the big picture would be that we are surrounded by so many messages coming from, you know, throughout through the world. And most of those don't include God. And God's word, it's inspired by God, it's truth. I need to be grounded in the truth in order to be able to discern what's right and what's not of, of all these other messages we're being bombarded with every day. Otherwise, if I don't stay grounded on that foundation, otherwise I'm gonna be pulled one way or the other uh, without even realizing it. I'm gonna, you're gonna kind of slide into the world's view on things instead of uh, standing in the truth. My goal is to follow Jesus and to help others follow Jesus. And it's hard to do if I don't know Jesus and, and know what he's telling me. So the only way I do know that is by reading his word and spending time in it. As I get older, I, I realize more and more how little I actually know. You know, when you're young, you think you know everything. And then as you get older, you realize that, that uh, oh, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. I need God's word to help me out because otherwise, you know, uh, I'm in trouble. When um, I have rushed through my Bible time or when I have not been like 
as consistent in um, fostering my relationship with the Lord and just like allowing Him to pour into my life, giving Him that time and that space, I can definitely notice um, changes in my life. Um, and so just trying to be consistent, even when the rest of life is inconsistent, has been really important for me. What I do with what I hear or read is again, try to apply that in practice in my life. So when I'm looking at a relationship with a friend or with my girlfriend or with my family, I'm gonna see how I'm gonna do that through faith, how I'm gonna depend on Jesus Christ in that specific situation, how I'm gonna utilize that scripture to make uh, myself into a better man, how to you know treat others with a Christ-like mi mindset. Um, and in practice kind of have this, this e eternal mindset, right? That if, I, if I'm living my life as a college student and I'm, I'm excited for that, that year and a half of when I'm finally gonna graduate and finally gonna commission into the Air Force, I'm not really getting ahead of myself in that situation, right? I have this perspective of what am I here for? What am I a college student for? What am I trying um, to graduate for? What am I trying to build these relationships with? And that's to serve the kingdom, right? That's to serve God. That's, that's to further the glory of Jesus Christ. That's really how I, I try to apply that scripture in practice.